Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm your podcast host. And today we're going to talk about a very important resource that many of you have asked for over the last few years. So as we talk about issues of biotechnology and really focus on applications, there's a lot of interest in the tools and the nuts and bolts of how the magic happens. And I've had so many people reach out and ask me, you know, where can I learn more about how this works? You know, I, I don't want to take a molecular biology class at a university, but I really want a more intimate understanding of the mechanism of biotechnology, how DNA works. What is the magic of DNA and how do we go from DNA to traits? And, you know, I could always point you to a few websites or things here and there. And we really needed a consolidated text, you know, a single source that I could recommend to you. And it finally happened. So I'm holding in my hand DNA Demystified, Unraveling the Double Helix. And this is um, written by Dr. Alan McEwen. He's a professor of cooperative extension and biotechnology at the University of California at Riverside. And he's here to talk to us today about the book. So welcome to the podcast again, Alan. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me, Kevin. Great to be here. Yeah, it's awesome to have you on again. It's, uh, we, we've had a few opportunities to hang out in rather concentrated uh, spells, and they've always been really helpful uh, and really enjoyable. And the thing that let's first do this before we dive into the book too much, you know, you've had a really solid background in kind of defining some of the original edges of biotechnology and products that you have even, you know, d delivered to market. Um, and could you talk about that a little bit to give some background and also your time with the State Department? Oh, um, well, sure. Uh, very briefly, I mean, I, I started as a bench scientist in molecular genetics long before biotechnology was a thing. Uh, and I figured my career path would, would be as an academic scientist working in a laboratory and publishing papers and getting grants and so on, but um, you know, very little dealing with the general public, who at that time uh, may have heard of DNA, but there wasn't a lot of interest in it. So I, I spent uh, my formative years learning about DNA, the structure, the function, and how we might be able to change it uh, in a directed fashion, which of course became the technology or a group of technologies that we, we classify as biotechnology. Um, I, I decided from an early stage to, to work on plants because my colleagues, my cohort, my other students uh, who were learning similar technologies were all heading into medicine and we all knew that biotechnology or the techniques that we were developing would have tremendous application, both in, in health and medical aspects, but also in agriculture and food production. And since they were all going into health and medicine, I figured, okay, well, even though I don't have a farm background, I don't know anything about food or crops, uh, I'm going to take that as, as an opportunity. 
And so I did and ended up working in a, in a crop science department at the University of Saskatchewan, which was great because they taught me so much about uh, crops and food production and agronomy. Uh, you know, I'm a city kid. I grew up in the city and, uh, as I say, had very little uh, knowledge or understanding of, of how foods are actually made or how crops are grown. So I um, just ended up developing the technologies, uh, started out uh, learning how to genetically engineer, how to insert genes into different crop plants, and some of those actually took off. So that was, that was successful. And at the same time, while I was there, learned that um, as, as a public scientist, there's any number of people out in the community who don't have a technical background, they don't know much about DNA, but they have questions. And they're not going to, to call a, a government scientist or industry scientist, they call the university scientists with their questions. So I learned to deal with the public who had some very basic questions. Um, sometimes they thought, oh, professor, I have this really stupid question, but none of them were ever stupid. They were just coming from a place of curiosity and they didn't have the background to understand. So uh, I spent a lot of time dealing with people uh, and trying to explain to them what we were doing with DNA and why it was important. So that's, that's that quick background. Um, eventually, I, I gained a reputation for, be able, for being able to explain some of these kind of difficult concepts or highly technical concepts in language that non-specialists could understand and appreciate. And because of that reputation, I eventually got invited to apply for a fellowship uh, that I eventually won that took me to State Department in Washington for a year to serve as a, a science advisor to the Secretary of State. So, you know, that again, I thought that was an amazing experience. I learned how uh, the real world of inside the Beltway works, as opposed to the world of the ivory tower. <laughs> so from the Beltway to the ivory tower. So was uh, that kind of fundamental understanding and ability to communicate what this is, is that the uh, impetus to write DNA demystified? Yeah, uh, you know, there's so many questions from people. Um, I mean, DNA is a fascinating topic. It's an amazing molecule that does amazing things. And I, I hope I convey that in the book. Um, in a way, again, that people who don't have a technical background can, can understand and appreciate. Um, lots of questions I get from, from the public are along those lines. You know, uh, they're, they're not stupid questions, but they are fairly simple questions. Uh, you know, things... Uh, the apparent contradiction when scientists say, well, all DNA is the same, and then turn around and say, oh, well, your DNA is different from everyone else's. Well, how can, all, how can we be the same if we're all different, right? It's just, uh, it just doesn't make sense. So going in to explore that and, and uh, showing how DNA is chemically, physically, all the same in all living things, yet at a, at a software level or at a functional level, we do differ in our DNA composition from one person to another and from us and trees or bacteria or viruses. And but that's what's so interesting about this is that it's called DNA demystified. And I thought, you know, that, that when the book showed up, I was a little bit surprised that it was 376 pages Yeah, because I thought, okay, so <laughs> we're going to demystify something and it's going to take a little doing to, to get that done. But what was really nice about this is that it does really provide a resource for people who really just want to get a foot in the door and a handle on the concepts that they've heard about all these years from, you know, things like genealogy, things like it, um, just basic transcription, translation. Um, 
but at the same time, it gives people who are experts in this area something new to think about here and there. And I can give some good examples of that, I guess. Like the thing that I really liked was when you talked about the different kinds of mutations um, from uh, frame shifts and uh, point mutations and use the phrase, um, the fat red cat yes. <laughs> ate, the, ate the old rat and bit off it bit his toe off you basically had what you know 13 words there that were all three letters each and it gave you an idea of what was happening with translation that if you took out a word here and there how it changes the sentence or if you switch a letter how you can change the sentence or how you can turn it to complete miss sense and that's something that i'll use in all my classes going forward and so how how much were you trying to really balance that between uh, you know, novel ways to describe something versus uh, just providing uh, the unfamiliar with new information. Well, you know, it, it really was based on the last uh, 20 or 30 years of my experience of dealing with people and, you know, trying to think of analogies or, or simple illustrations to get the point across. And the fat red cat was something that I, I found uh, it worked with audiences. I mean, you know this, you're standing in front of a group of people and you try an illustration uh, an analogy, a metaphor, and you can tell when the people grasp it. And you can also tell when their eyes glaze over that, no, this one doesn't work. So uh, I know that that works, right? The the three words or three letters to a word, uh, the sentence structure conveys uh, an instruction or information. Uh, people get that. And they also get how easy it is to change one letter and either obliterate the information altogether, or change it subtly, or potentially have no effect whatsoever. So all of these are things, as you know, that happen with mutations, and I wanted to get that point across. And I knew this illustration uh, with the three-letter words worked, just from my past experience. So the book really <clears throat> is uh, a culmination of all of these uh, little lessons that I found over the years actually work to convey uh, technical information in a way that non-technical people can understand. And I also was surprised that coming from a plant biologist, that this would be so um, maybe human centric. And was that also a strategy to this to make it relatable to an audience? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact is that uh, <laughs> I'm not a plant biologist. <laughs> I'm, I'm a molecular <laughs> geneticist. I've been all my career. I've worked on DNA and as it happens, plants tended to be the organisms that I work with because their DNA is the same as any other DNA uh, of any eukaryote, that is, of a, a plant or an animal. So, um, you know, I, I did get this tag. I'm often introduced as a, as a botanist or a plant biologist. And, uh, you know, to the uh, annoyance of my colleagues who actually are plant biologists and botanists, because, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I know a little bit about the plants specifically that I work with. Uh, but my field is is more generally, broadly, molecular genetics and DNA. So um, to a certain extent, uh, I had to recognize that, um, you know, it, it is broadening my own, uh, let's say, my, my experience out there. But more importantly, many of the questions that people have come from the health and medical side. So I have to address those. If I'm going to talk about DNA demystified on a broad spectrum basis, which is what I was trying to do, I can't exclude the medical or the, the human side of the DNA. So that was in there front and center. And I hope I conveyed that human DNA is not all that different from the DNA of other living things, so particularly 
other animals and even plants. I feel kind of bad now by saying plant biologist because I, I always say the same thing about me. My terminal degree was in molecular biology. And I had, in order to get that degree, I had to study yeast and C. elegans and mouse and human and take classes in cancer cell biology. And so, it's, so you know, plants were just the bucket I fell in when I left the, you know, left the PhD program. So I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. So well, that's, when, you know, when, it, it, I'm going to interrupt you here because that, that's an important point. And it's, it's something that I don't often uh, raise, but it tends to be the plant scientists or people who focus on plants while learning about DNA that also learn about, as you say, the yeast, the bacteria, the animals, the humans, uh, and even medical stuff, just as part of, of our background training. Whereas somebody, if you talk to somebody who has a, a degree in molecular genetics who focused on human DNA, they get almost nothing on plants. So they could not write this type of book um, with the same level of authority because they don't have plants in their background. And often they don't have uh, microbes in it either, or even lower animals. So I find that plant scientists who focus on DNA, uh, even though they're not really botanists or plant scientists, uh, do know more of the broad base. They know about humans, they know about bacteria and, and other prokaryotes, uh, they know about lower animals, and they know about humans. So that gives them the, the foundation to be able to speak uh, across the broad spectrum of DNA applications. And, and really, you do that in this book extremely well. So we're speaking with Dr. Alan McEwen. He's a professor at the University of California, Riverside. Uh, DNA Demystified is the book, Unraveling the Double Helix. And we'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment. The forces of disinformation are well-financed and flood the media from Facebook to Netflix with false information about food, medicine, and agriculture. So how do we counter that? Luckily, many have taken up the mantle to provide good sources of information and media. These are friends of the podcast that can use your support. That might just be sharing their work in your social media space, or maybe some financial assistance towards a new project. A great example. Dr. Hitty Borthma and Sugar Rush Films are producing a new documentary about glyphosate. They do beautiful work on a very limited budget. And the videos are viewed for free. Donate to their effort at Sugar Rush Films. Dr. Alan McEwen's new book, DNA Demystified, is a superb primer on the basics of DNA and modern applications. The Science Facts and Fallacies podcast is Kevin Fulta and Cameron English covering today's hot science stories. I listen because I like to hear Fulta try to be entertaining. That's at geneticliteracy.org. No Ideas Media, that's no K-N-O-W, produces outstanding short videos that clarify issues in agriculture. The Safe Food Blog covers important issues in farming and biotechnology at safefood, S-A-I-F-O-O-D, dot C-A. You can help by visiting and sharing these resources with your audiences, write reviews, maybe even send a few dollars to support their efforts. These are people helping to clarify the confusion around food and farming. 
And now, back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Alan McEwen. He's the author of DNA Demystified, a rather hefty book that really is a uh, really good primer for those of you who are interested in what is DNA science, how does it work, and how does it relate to disease, genealogy, and other aspects of human biology, as well as what are some of the biotechnology applications that we've seen in plants and in medicine. And um, one of the things that's been really interesting about the book to me was it really seems like you may have stopped writing yesterday because it's extremely up to date. And was that really a big emphasis to include, you know, everything up to the the day in terms of gene editing and, and also examples like, you know, Golden State Killer and how they caught him? You know, these are all really topical topics. Of course. And that's what's driving a lot of interest right now is uh, the forensic use and this genetic genealogy, um, you know, the Golden State Killer and, and any number. I mean, uh, that was something that uh, uh, drove my desire to be as comprehensive as possible because, you know, I, I didn't want somebody coming to me saying, oh, Dr. McEwen, I, I have this question about DNA. You know, how did they catch the Golden State Killer um, without actually dealing with that type of question uh, in the book? So I tried to make it as up-to-date as possible. It, it goes to uh, January was the last time I was able to, to make any changes to the text. And at that point, I was able to slip in coronavirus and I was able to slip in uh, the fact that the, um, the former king of Belgium did actually turn out uh, on DNA test to be the father of that child that uh, he had denied for so many years. Um, that's the latest thing. If I could change it now, of course, I'd put in the, the news that came out just two days ago that the Golden State Killer has decided uh, to plead guilty to 13 murders uh, rather than face the courtroom with all that DNA evidence stacked against him. And that they caught because of uh, essentially one of these uh, ancestry type programs, correct? Yes, it was. Um, and, and this is a new field. I mean, we all know about CODIS. And I talk about CODIS, which is the FBI's DNA database into which they put DNA samples uh, from, uh, from either convicted criminals uh, or unknown crime scenes. And then when they have a suspect, they add that DNA to see if there's a match with somebody who's already in the database. Well, that doesn't, it's not a big database, uh, and it, it has some problems uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, the skewing of the entries in the database. But by combining the CODIS uh, database, which is based on a, a very narrow STR-type marker in the DNA, with the genealogy databases, which are based on uh, SNP, results, which is a, a different part. Those, those two databases are not compatible. But if you get clever people who can find the genealogy uh, databases, apply a, a suspect's DNA uh, to those genealogy databases, build a family tree, and identify potential suspects based on their uh, presence in this artificially constructed uh, DNA family tree, and then go back and, uh, you know, if they're suspects, you follow them around until they donate DNA involuntarily, like from a coffee cup or a cigarette butt or something, uh, and do the CODIS test on those, they come up with a match if you have the, the right guy. 
And that's how the uh, Golden State Killer was caught. And that's how dozens of other cold case criminals have now been identified. Uh, some of those have already gone through the courts and have been convicted. Some of them are still going through the courts. So you know, a very ex uh, exciting area of, of DNA application in modern society. And it's only going to expand. Anybody who has a history, uh, you know, they have a family member who's, um, you know, was murdered or raped, uh, but they have no idea who the criminal is, might be uh, contacting the local police or the relevant police department saying, you know, are you doing the genetic genealogy test to find who this guy is? And similarly, if you're a criminal who, who did commit a crime some time ago, a murder or rape, and perhaps inadvertently left your DNA behind, get ready for a knock on your door, buddy, because they're coming for you. <laughs> well, well, tying in with that, I guess, is, you know, you, you do a lot of discussion of the nuts and bolts end of this, uh, of DNA and, and, and DNA science, but also bring up the topics around ethics of some of the modern technologies. And how important is that to discuss the ethical considerations? Absolutely crucial. Um, you know, science moves ahead. You and I are scientists. We do our work in laboratory in the field. Uh, we want to get technical answers. We want to learn more about how nature works. But we typically aren't too concerned about the ethical side of it. And, you know, you and I, I think, are somewhat uh, unusual from our, most of our colleagues in that respect in that we do consider the ethical implications of our work. So we have to, we as scientists, as public scientists particularly, have to recognize that other people have a say in the implications of the work we're doing, and those are largely surrounding ethics. And it's only, um, you know, if you read the, that ethical chapter, you'll get some of the examples of things that, you know, you and I, when we're doing our science, we may not think of, right, that, that have a huge ethical component that you have to read it and think about it to say, oh, yeah, um, this really could cause some, some consternation. This could hurt people emotionally, uh, psychologically. We have to be careful about how we release this, uh, how we apply this in, uh, in a public setting. So uh, that is a, it is a big issue. Uh, this this uh, uh, chapter is directed largely to our colleagues so that they think a bit more about the implications of their work and also to the public who are, are very excited about the technology and say, yeah, let's just move forward full steam ahead. Uh, let's back off here a moment and just keep these things in mind uh, and put some logical restrictions on them, put some logical, sensible regulations on them. Because if we don't do it now, then as we know from the, the greater uh, GMO debate, other people are going to apply restrictions later and they may not be sensible or logical and can be very harmful. So that's uh, that's part of the reason I, I wrote that particular chapter. And there is a lot of discussion in here about uh, current crop technologies and some of the things that we traditionally speak of in this forum every week. But uh, did you have any real, what was your ultimate synthesis on the current state of biotechnology as it's applied to agriculture? And what are some of the... Uh, you know, real highlights of ways that it has been positive? Oh, I think, you know, the, the impact of, of biotechnology and agriculture has been tremendous, and it's going to be even more so into the future. And, you know, we still have uh, a, a planet with 8 billion or so people on it. They all want to eat every day, and we just don't have enough food to feed everyone. We have a billion people who go to bed hungry every day, 
And although we're feeding more people now than we ever have, and at least partly because of applications of biotechnology producing more food, safer food, and more efficient food in a more sustainable manner, we're going to have to increase that dramatically over the next few years. The only way we can do that is using uh, biotechnology methods. Uh, and that will include not only what I call traditional now transgenics, the biotechnology that, that we've developed since the mid-1980s, but also the genome editing techniques that I, I think are much more acceptable uh, to the wider audience who have uh, misgivings or concerns about you know, traditional transgenes where we, we move genes from one species to another. I know this is not a bother to you. It's not a bother to me. It's not a bother to the scientific community. But some people still feel wary about moving genes from one species to another, even though we both know Mother Nature does it all the time. So gene uh, genome editing uh, could be more palatable to people to say, yes, okay, I can support the use of that technology, particularly if it's going to develop new crops that are more efficient, that are safer, and grown in a more sustainable manner. So that's where I think we're going with agricultural biotechnology, on the plant side at least, uh, to a lesser extent on the animals, um, you know, our, our colleague Allison Van Eeninum, uh, a DNA scientist working with animals, and um, you know, she quite rightly points out that it looks like the regulation stacking up against animal biotechnology, even genome editing, are going to be so onerous and so unscientific and so illogical that it's going to be a, a major obstacle on the animal side to do even simple things, and, uh, and that's a shame. So I'd, I'd hate to see the animal biotech applications get tied up with the types of regulations that, that were such an obstacle to plant biotechnology since the mid-1990s. Well, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the animal biotech products have to be approved as basically as drugs, rather than as food, um, which is really a, an interesting problem. But um, is that just a U.S. thing, or do you think that uh, different regulatory um, barriers in different countries, which will probably be very low in places like China, do you think that they will have a way to kind of force our hand to speed the uh, regulatory process here? You know, I, I think there's going to be variation across the globe that different countries are going to have different regulatory processes, and right down to the, the principles, the fundamentals of, of why they're regulating and what they're trying to achieve with the regulations. Um, and I, we've had that with a number of things, but what's really going to screw things up, I think, is that so much of our agricultural production, both plants and animals, are then transported internationally. And so it's going to be the disconnect between the U.S. regulations and the regulations in our uh, receiving country, particularly the EU. And uh, if they have a different attitude, you know, we have, uh, you know, the current proposals that uh, a good number of our gen genome edited crops may not be regulated the same way uh, transgenic crops are regulated. And some of them may get very little regulatory scrutiny whatsoever. And I think uh, in certain cases, that's appropriate. But if the Europeans say, no, 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 they have to get the, the full scrutiny as if they were transgenics, and, uh, and our farmers start growing these crops legally in the U.S. and ship them off to Europe, the Europeans are going to say, whoa, you know, this, isn't, this doesn't meet our standards. And that's just one example of, I think, where the disconnect between different countries, I think it's okay for, the, for different countries to have somewhat different regulations, 
But the disconnect is so great in that case, it is really going to disrupt international trade. And that hurts everybody. Nobody wins when you have to turn around a Panamax freighter uh, because it doesn't have the right paperwork for the, the grain inside. So as you go through the entire book, it starts out with a very nuts and bolts discussion of DNA that I think think is fantastic. And you move more into applications in human biology, from genealogy, that kind of thing, ending with genetic engineering. But is there anything that you really wish that you had done a little bit more deeper? I don't think so at this stage. I mean, I can always say, like, if I were to, to have the, the manuscript in front of me, I could go back and update things. You know, the, the forensic use... Um, there's always new information coming through on that. Uh, the genetic engineering and particularly uh, the therapies, um, you know, the updates on like the, uh, the first human trials uh, to overcome sickle cell anemia. We had an update the other day, you know, very positive, yeah. still, still interim, right? I mean, I'm going to uh, await the, the final peer-reviewed analysis of how it works out. Uh, but the preliminary um, uh, interim report looks very promising. So we can be cautiously optimistic. So those are the kinds of things that I think I would change now, but uh, I'm not aware of anything that, that uh, I would add. Um, I might say something like uh, the bioinformatics uh, and the uh, uh, data mining is a really interesting area that I, I covered lightly. Um, and, and, and I'm sure critics will say, well, why didn't you go into this in more depth? And there's two very good reasons for that. One, it's not my area of expertise. I don't have the same comfort in dealing with, with those. And also, we're getting away from DNA in those technologies. Of course, DNA is at the heart of them, at the foundation, but it's more mathematics, statistical analysis, and uh, computer technologies. Uh, and I didn't, you know, the book is big enough as it is. It's 150,000 words which, um, you know, is, as you mentioned, is a, is a pretty hefty tome already. So I had to be careful about expanding it too much. And so I, I cut down uh, that scope a little bit on those couple of areas that I think, um, you know, some critics would quite rightly say, you know, I wish you had mentioned more about this. Well, have you actually used any of these genealogy services? And are you actually, you know, interested in playing with your own DNA sequence? Absolutely. I, I tested all of the companies, almost all the companies uh, that I mentioned in the book, uh, certainly the main ones, um, Ancestry, 23andMe, uh, FTDNA, um, MyHeritage, uh, uh, and even one of the older ones, DecodeMeCom, which was one of the first companies that did this. I wanted to get my DNA into those companies, have them analyze it, and then get it back so I could actually assess, did they do a good job with this, right? I mean, these are commercial companies who are trying to make money, which is fine, uh, but are they cutting corners? Uh, are they uh, accurately representing what my results are? So I wanted to do that myself and uh, and then compare one against the other. And so uh, I, I wasn't going to recommend to people a particular company, unless I had personal experience with them handling my own DNA. And it came out that those, I call them the big four companies, the ones that do most of the you know, direct-to-consumer DNA testing, for mostly for uh, genealogy, but 23andMe also has a focus on health and medical. Um, I wanted to make sure they were reputable companies. They are. I have no hesitation in rec- recommending any of those. And if people are interested in getting their own DNA tested, 
uh, I simply suggest, you know, look at the websites for those companies uh, and find one that you're comfortable with, because that's really the difference in the companies. The DNA tests themselves are very similar across those different companies. In fact, you can take your raw DNA when you get it back and in certain cases, transfer it over to another company's database and be able to use that uh, to compare and pick up new cousins, uh, distant cousins that had tested in that uh, transfer company. Uh, so, you know, it, it, these are reputable companies. The data is reliable. What's, what differences are is the, uh, the uh, interface that they have with their customers and people, you know, well, some people are very dedicated to uh, family tree DNA, for example, and they have their own website and that's what they like about it. Um, but as far as the actual raw data is concerned, all four of those companies are very reputable. You, you can be pretty sure that uh, when you get a, a data point back saying, you know, at SNP number XYZ, you have a, your DNA base is a T, that your DNA base at that location in your genome is actually a T. But what about the other big issue of privacy? And that's a big question that people often state when they deal with the DNA companies is, well, I'm turning over my blueprint. And it, could this be used against me down the road, like when I apply for insurance? Maybe they see I have a genetic predisposition to a certain type of uh, very expensive disease downstream. Is that really a consideration as well? Well, it's certainly a common concern, and I, that's a fair concern. That would be the first question I would ask. Um, there's, there's a couple of answers, though, uh, in terms of reassurance. One is a technical one. When the companies are testing your DNA, they're not testing your entire genome. What they are testing are the, uh, the SNPs, which is only 0.1% of your genome. So different uh, flags scattered around your genome uh, 600 to 700,000 of them. Uh, and that's the information you get back. That's the information the companies have on you. And it's not enough to take those SNPs and then reconstruct your genome to reliably say, oh yeah, you're, you're susceptible to this, uh, this rare type of cancer. And it's going to cost us as a insurance company a fortune uh, if this is ever realized. No, I mean, that, that is a concern that people have. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's uh one that would really deter people from getting their, their DNA tested with that service. Um, because even if the, the DNA information does get out, and that does happen, right? I mean, uh, you know, companies are hacked from time to time, uh, or people release things that they don't mean to. That, that does happen, even with your banks. So it is likely that at some point, some of your DNA information is going to get out. But is somebody going to be able to do something with that? Well, here in the U.S., you know, there's a statutory protection uh, saying that employers and health insurance companies cannot use your DNA information against you. Right? So that's a statutory uh, limitation. Uh, the more technical limitation uh, is that simply because you have a SNP that is associated statistically with a particular disease doesn't mean you are actually going to ever contract that disease. It's a statistical correlation, and it's not sufficient for a company to deny you insurance just on that basis alone. The third thing I want to say about the, the DNA privacy is that if a, a government, if the CIA, FBI, or some company, Ancestry, 23andMe, or your insurance company, if they want to know your DNA, they probably already have it. 
because we leave our DNA every time we step outside, every time we discard our trash, our DNA is in there. And the same basis that, you know, we go back to the Golden State Killer. This is how the Golden State Killer was identified and all of these other cold case criminals because their DNA was discarded on something, whether it's a cigarette butt, uh, a Band-Aid with a drop of blood on it, coffee cup, whatever. That provides enough DNA to give whoever steals it, or whoever, sorry, it's not stolen at this point, it's taken and it's it's salvaged, so it's not even illegal. Uh, they can take that and analyze the DNA and get your entire genome, not just the 0.1% of your genome that they get from a SNP test from one of these uh, genealogy companies. Well, you know, as uh, sequencing has gotten cheaper and cheaper, you know, you still have the side of synthesis and you can, you know, the worst nightmare situation would be someone gets your genome and synthesizes it and leaves your DNA at a crime scene. (laughs) And that has been done. Um, Fortunately, you know, both prosecutors and defense attorneys, you know, are are now getting to know uh, the limitations of DNA for forensic purposes. And, uh, you know, I talk about some of these examples in the in the book. Um, but just because your DNA is found at a crime scene doesn't mean that you're the criminal that pulled the trigger, right? And so there have been examples in the court, through the courts, uh, where people have had their DNA literally planted uh, at a crime scene in order to frame you. Uh, but fortunately, as I say, now that the both law enforcement and defense attorneys are aware that that can happen and the mechanisms by which it can happen, uh, I think that probably covers most of the uh, anxiety surrounding that usage. Yeah, I guess if I was a criminal, I'd always kind of go, uh, I'd leave like, a, you know, marmoset and cactus DNA, you know, really confuse them. Sure. <laughs> but, but, uh, Kevin, I have a question for you. Have you had your DNA tested with one of these uh, companies, Ancestry or 23andMe, and what was your experience of it? Yeah, well, I was an early adopter because I, I, I remember when these tests first came out, they actually, the FDA pulled them back because they said that they were, um, that people were not equipped to deal with the data they would receive in terms of the outcomes. And eventually that went away. I was an early adopter on 23andMe and I loved it. And I went through all of the data from associations and really found out what I already knew, you know, about, you know, the kind of patterns that are present in my family that, um, you know, my family, uh, very long history of, uh, of, uh, you know, genes that are associated with obesity and behavioral issues that, um, really were the biggest fatalities in my family, you know? And so very interesting to see that. And it's also a glimmer of hope that, um, if I can control myself, I'll be okay. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it, uh, it's interesting that um, I do cover that FDA uh, 23andMe interaction, and it's, it's curious. I, I, I Similarly, I had my DNA tested with 23andMe before the FDA came down on them. And I remember arguing at the time, you know, the FDA was saying, hey, you're, you're providing uh, health information um, and guidance to people uh, improperly. And the, uh, I disagreed with that. I, I said my argument was that 23andMe is only providing people with information about what their DNA says, the associations of different points in their DNA with different health and, and medical conditions. They're not providing direction, uh, diagnosis, or treatments. Uh, it's just information in the same way that stepping on a bathroom scale gives you information about your weight 
and whether, you know, I mean, you look at your, your data point and decide whether I should do something about my weight or not. That's all 23andMe was doing. And that, that was my argument. It didn't hold sway with the FDA. And, uh, and then later, 23andMe had to, uh, had to negotiate with, with FDA about what they'd be allowed to say. Now, uh, the trick here is that if the 23andMe is still testing the same sites it did before the approval from FDA. So all of that information is still in your raw file. And if you read the book, I show you how to find that information in the raw DNA and get all of that medical information that the FDA is disallowing. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that you should do anything necessarily with this, except if you get a scary result on a, on a health or medical situation that shows that you have a predisposition to whether it's obesity uh, or heart disease or some obscure cancer, um, take that information to your personal care physician and get the, the full test done from them. Uh, that's, uh, that's the best advice I can give to people. Don't rely and don't take action based on a SNP test results that suggests that you might have some predisposition because the predisposition uh, may be very slight. And if people don't understand statistics, and very few people do, you know, they might take that very slight susceptibility or predisposition uh, as a sure thing and introduce a lot of unnecessary anxiety into their lives. No, exactly. And I think that's what they were most afraid of. On the flip side of that, though, for someone like me, I thought it was really cool to be able to understand. I, I came up with some associations for a rare type of biliary you know, cancer. So, yeah. and so what's interesting there is, is that I start to think, well, if I ever had symptoms that were associated with uh, like, you know, jaundice or other types of digestive issues, I might uh, bring that up to a primary care physician or to a digestive specialist. So it's good to take these things with a grain of salt, but really do think about them as another level of just information you have about your hardware. And, and that's a really good thing. Yeah, no, that uh, it is a good thing. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about these, you know, cancers and heart disease and really scary things, but there's also, you know, fairly mundane things. There are, you know, still health conditions. And I, I, I talk about my friend who had uh, her DNA tested and came back with a predisposition for uh, factor V Leiden, um, which is a blood clotting disorder uh, that, um, you know, seems to be implicated in things like deep vein thrombosis, which can be a very serious condition, but it, you know, it's out there. And so I suggested to her, you know, take this result to your doctor and see what your doctor says. So she did. Uh, the doctor looked at it and said, okay, we have to check into this and ordered the, the full medical DNA test, right? The legitimate one, not just a SNP test, but the full one. And that result came back. Yes, she did indeed have uh, factor V Leiden. And as a result, you know, they discussed it together and as a result, the doctor suggested, look, if you're ever on a, a long plane trip or a car ride, just make sure you get up and walk around every so often, uh, because that's where the real problems come. Um, the people sit too long with this condition, they get a blood clot in their legs, and uh, you know, nasty things can happen as a result of that. So that was something fairly simple. Um, it did change her life. She does, I mean, not dramatically, but she makes sure that when she's in a car car ride for a long time or a plane flight. Well, not so much today, um, but she gets up and walks around and, and that's all it takes. Now that's good advice for everybody, right? Whether you have factor five laden or not. Um, but it's, it's a small thing, 
but a very positive thing in her life. And she now feels much more in control. She understands her DNA a little bit better. She understands that she has a susceptibility to this, and she has the power to manage that condition. Whereas if you didn't get the DNA in the first place or you ignored it, you wouldn't. Well, not to not to jerk the chain of her physician, but factor five also has uh, is necessary to understand uh, if you are having undergoing surgery, because there can be additional complications of healing and clotting with regards to surgery in certain uh, in certain procedures. Yes. So that that's. So, you know, that kind of thing, plus a sensitivity to things like uh, coumarin or warfarin or uh, these other types of sensitivities are also things that come through the uh, 23andMe test. And that's super valuable information. And probably, you know, and, and maybe you can answer this for me, is what does the future of personalized medicine look like based on DNA sequence? And it, when do you think that the first thing we'll do at the physician's office is get our sequence? Absolutely. You know, I talk about this a little bit, uh, but yeah, I mean, things like uh, uh, drug doses. Drug doses are designed on, you know, the average person. Uh, so whether it's, uh, you know, 100 milligrams twice a day, whatever, that's, that's based on, on an average person, um, you know, designed through the, the phase trials and so on. But with personalized medicine, uh, as you mentioned, the warfarin thing, right? I, I had that as well. And as a result, I think I'm more sensitive to, to warfarin or less sensitive. So when uh, when my doctor says, okay, we're going to have to put you on warfarin now, um, you know, I'm thinking, hey, that's rat poison. I'm not sure I want to take that. Uh, but then, you know, uh, when it gets down to it and I say, okay, you know, you're my physician, I trust you. Uh, now here's my DNA results. What dosage? What is the appropriate dosage for me? And then we can calculate what is the appropriate dosage for me or for Kevin Folda or for anyone else. It isn't necessarily the same as the average person. So, you know, that's really useful information. Um, and I do want to add here, by the way, you mentioned that you got this through 23andMe. Um, the other tests, the other companies, that information is also in their tests. So even if you were primarily concerned with your, your genealogy and wanted to build a family tree, so you've got ancestry DNA to run the test, your raw data will also include information on things like dosages to, to warfarin or factor V Leiden or some of these other health conditions. Ancestry doesn't tell you about them, but other websites will, and some of them are even free. You just download your raw data, upload it to, to one or more of these other uh, third-party sites, and they will tell you uh, whether you have the increased susceptibility for factor V Leiden or whatever it may be. Yeah, my uh, cardiologist said that I was sensitive to warfarin, and he said to cut back on cheese and made me run through a maze. So I don't know. I don't know what that means. <laughs> there was my stress test. <laughs> right. Well, overall, if anyone wanted to find a copy of your book, where would they obtain this? And and can they get a signed copy from you yet? Uh, they can get a signed copy. A uh, number of people have asked me this, and I, I said, look, I'm happy to sign copies. Um, you have to bear the, the cost of the postage, uh, but uh, you know, send me a, an email, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to do it. Um, the book is available most easily either from Oxford University Press, which is the publisher, uh, but also you know, the standard online booksellers like Amazon. Amazon has it on sale right now. Uh, I doubt you'll see it in a regular bookshop for as good of a price. 
So uh, that's probably my recommendation at the moment. But if for some reason Amazon runs out of uh, stock every so often, you can always get it from the publisher or um, you can always shoot me a line, drop me an email and say, hey, you know, Alan, I can't find the book anywhere. I'd like to buy it. You know, where can I get it? Because I keep track of this stuff. <laughs> As the author, I want to know where the book is uh, is being sold. So I'll be able to tell you, you know, who's got it on sale. I don't, I'm not making money out of this. I didn't write the book to make money. So, um, you know, just uh, let me know and I will let you know what I know at that time. That's good advice. And, and, and you should have this book, DNA Demystified, should have a Twitter account too, by the way. And I don't think it does. So. I don't think it does either. You'll have to help me <laughs> with that, Kevin. Well, I think it's a great idea because that would give you a lot more visibility of, of this particular product. And, and you know, and I, I don't like to make the podcast into an infomercial ever, but um, in this case, I kind of make an exception because, as I mentioned in the beginning, it's a resource that that many people have asked me for. You know, where can I get the, a really good, simple, um, complete discussion of the basics I need to participate in conversations around biotechnology? So that's why we're having this one here today. You know, the um, uh, I just want to jump in here for a moment, Kevin, that it reminds me that although I, I wrote this primarily for people who are interested in DNA but don't have a technical background, uh, I'm finding that that a lot of my colleagues are appreciating it because you know they may work with DNA, they may work like in a in a forensics lab for a law enforcement agency, or they may work on a in a genealogy situation where they know a small slice of how DNA fits into their world, but they were never taught the technology, they never knew the basics, and they're kind of missing something. They know they're missing something and uh, would like to have a resource that would, you know, be a, a non-technical thing to bring me up to speed on uh, on the background, on the foundation, the structure, and so on, and also some of the other applications that, you know, they may have uh, approached only as a, an ordinary lay person. Um, you know, the person in the, uh, in the forensics lab knows that there's a genealogy component, but how do they fit together? And so, um, you know, a number of people have said, hey, this is great. I work with DNA, but this is a, a great broad spectrum thing that really fills in a lot of gaps in my own information about DNA. No, that's an excellent point. And because really since I would say the mid-2000s, we have seen more and more people who have been relying either for their jobs or their education on really what has become much more cookbook-type DNA work. So buying the kit that allows you to purify DNA or, you know, do a reaction or whatever. And it's not, you know, add this much polynucleotide kinase and this much molarity of ATP and this much, because this is how it works. It's add reagent X and then wait five minutes and put in two microliters of buffer L and you don't know what's in there. It's proprietary. And so you, you lose this kind of fundamental connection with what's happening in the test tube and this really strong intimacy that you need to have in order to troubleshoot it and optimize it. Yeah. And so that's why I didn't really think about that as I was reading the book, but it really does fill that gap for people who are um, in those more modern ruts of cookbook biology. Yeah. I I liken it to, um, you know, giving uh, kids in elementary school a calculator without actually teaching them how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide. I mean, they get the answer right away to, to the various calculations, but they don't understand how they get to that answer. And with DNA demystified, people who are working with some aspect, as you say, they're, you know, it's a slice of their job. They understand how to, how to add X to Y. 
um, but they're not really sure why, and they don't know what it actually does, except that this is part of the job and it gives me the answer. Um, so for people who want to, to feel like they understand what's actually going on when they're adding X to Y, uh, I, I do think DNA Demystified will help you know, give them that satisfaction and uh, appreciate where they're coming from and where the DNA is coming from. Well, what's your next project? <laughs> uh, that's a very good question. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm still uh, working on this. I mean, as you know, it was only released last month. Uh, it's, uh, it's only getting ramped up. I'm starting to give interviews on it. And, um, and, you know, obviously I'm not going to the, uh, uh, book shows. I'm not going to give, uh, public, uh, lectures on it. Um, so I'm, I'm sitting at home here and dealing with it as much as possible. Um, I have marked, uh, I found a couple of typos already, believe it or not. <laughs> and so I have those marked and I'm, I'm waiting for, uh, for readers to submit others. If, uh, if they find any, if they come across any, that's always, that's always helpful to me so that, uh, you know, when there's a second edition and hopefully there will be, uh, I'll be able to fix those things like those typos and then any other errors, technical errors that might be in there uh, or factual errors for that matter. Um, so that's, that's where I am at the moment. I'm, I'm still staying at home. I'm hunkered down. Uh, I take the advice of, of scientists and people who know what they're talking about to stay away from this coronavirus thing. Um, you know, I'm not going out to a, to a bar until Dr. Fauci goes out to a bar. Oh, as soon as this thing is lifted, I'll go out to one with you and we'll uh, raise a pint to this particular accomplishment. It's a really nice piece of work. Thank you. So doc, Dr. Alan McEwen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And for everybody else, thank you again for listening to another weekly installation of the Talking Biotech Podcast. As always, write reviews on iTunes or wherever you consume your pod. Um, <laughs> show us a little love on Patreons, which is fantastic for helping us promote the podcast. And uh, tell a friend. Uh, we're getting more and more downloads every week, and we're well on our way towards uh, away from 1 million, on our way to 2 million downloads, which is pretty spectacular. Uh, we're in our sixth year, 250 episodes now, and it just keeps growing. So thank you. It's all because of you. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal view of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. 
With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.